organization operates as an ecosystem, right? So um, culture, how leaders behave, all the processes and friction and technology and what's rewarded, what level of transparency you have, is it cohesive, do we connect the dots for people, all kinds of factors, all these different levers within an organization work together. So even if one or two of those things is really good, the other things can derail it easy. Hello and welcome to the Making Better podcast, where we talk about how to make ourselves, our teams, and our organizations better. Whether you are a business leader, a talent development professional, or an individual contributor, this show will give you actionable insights to help improve your own performance and the performance of those around you. Our guest today is Tanil Miller. Tanil is the author of the book, The Flourishing Effect, and the founder of EXT, which stands for Experience and Transformation. In today's episode, you will learn how the way we work is struggling to keep up with the changes in the world, why so many of these problems are so hard to solve, and a basic framework to help you identify the actual cause of problems like high employee turnover or burnout. Before we get to the discussion, I need to remind you that if this is your first time listening to the show, make sure to hit subscribe so you never miss a future episode. And if you are already subscribed, then I ask that you share this show with at least one other person because that, after all, is how we grow. I can't tell you how much it means to me. And with that, let's get into the discussion. So have you read The Psychology of Money? Yeah, I have actually. Really? Awesome. Because this was, I, I read it last year, really, really enjoyed it. And honestly, especially as I was reading the introduction to your book, um, it really made me think of the psychology of money. Because the thing that stood out to me the most in the psychology of money was just this idea. They, they talk for a bit in the book about how like the 401k is only 40 years old and social security obviously is, isn't that old. And this idea that you go back two or three generations and just the expectation was you're just going to work until you die because there's because there's nothing else and how dramatically things have changed since then. And so now it feels like if you can't retire when you're 60, you've somehow failed <laughs> in, in life. And that's just completely different than it was not that long ago. And the beginning of your book, I think, does a really good job tracing similar changes and just kind of like the way we engage with work. Could you start, maybe that's a good place for us to start of talking through this, like what what's changed in the past, you know, 75 years about how, how people engage with work. Yeah, absolutely. And I love the parallel that you make. I think there's a lot of things. I mean, I think I, I think in the beginning of the book, I kind of started with like the indentured, indentured servant model and the landowner model. And that's kind of where we started. Like the way we work today is still a lot kind of based on that, which is so far from where we are as a people, as you know. Um, yeah. So I've got this whole chapter in the book that I call the New Deal. And it really talks about like how that old school social contract between the employer and the employee is no longer valid. And that you know, today's workforce, for example, is they're just not willing to stake their futures on an organization that fails to offer them that security, the fair treatment, the adequate wages and bonuses of previous generations, you know, and the pensions and things like that. Like today, there's no pensions. Wages yeah. are very yeah. underwhelming. I mean, the data is just lines up how they've just gone downhill so much in, you know, percentage to like the income that's coming in and the revenue. And then companies are, you know, basically perfectly comfortable laying off people as soon as their, you know, profits dip below a certain margin. So I think because of those factors over the years, basically since the 80s ish, 
um, many organizations have really just left people feeling dispensable, right? Kind of forcing them to search for other ways to secure their financial future. And I think at this point, it's really, you know, it's safe to say that like that traditional employer-employee relationship, we've really outgrown it, you know, for all these reasons. And so, you know, in those days, it was like the job interview was kind of like the first date, if you will. And then you had this blind promise after that of a lifelong loyalty that neither party really is likely to uphold. So you'd have that dynamic too. And so in the book, I really propose a new social contract for the employee-employer relationship, but it's based much more on like transparency, mutual value creation, again, for both sides. And then that longer term partnership, regardless of whether you're employed or in that relationship together. So in order to orchestrate that, it's really like organizations have to really I think get really good at um, creating mechanisms for both parties to access and add value quickly as soon as possible to each side because Mm. people aren't going to stay around forever and the company's not going to keep them forever. So instead of wasting everyone's time and money and energy, we need to find ways to quickly access that value. And then in the book, I go through some of the ways that, you know, you can do that, some of those new sources of value, that type of thing. Yeah. Now now you're speaking my language because I feel like, you know, and since so many talent development professionals listen to this podcast, I think that's 100% right where when you see, you know, a lot of the lack of need for training or maybe poor training practices or this idea that, well, we're just going to onboard people kind of through osmosis. They're going to be around. They're going to be an apprentice for a long time. It really relied on people are going to be around for 10 years, 20 years. And if, yeah, if people are going to be around for 18 months, 24 months, you just don't have any time. You need them to hit the ground, hit the ground running. Have you seen in your book, did you see a lot of benefits like, like concrete benefits? Cause I think, I think there's a lot of companies that still haven't, you know, grasped that, that that's a key component of making this change. Oh, yeah, absolutely. Well, some of the things I kind of talked about was, you know, for example, if you think of some of these new benefits or sources of value each side can offer each other that they're not really capitalizing on today. um, When you think about it. um, So one thing I know that LinkedIn does, and they started this a while ago, quite a while ago is like, literally, I think it's the onboarding process itself. In that process, people are asked, how do you want to grow? How do you want to develop? And where do you want to kind of have change basically before or when you leave us basically. So they're basically reverse engineering from the very beginning because they know people aren't going to stay forever. So yeah. they reverse engineering from the very beginning of like, where do you want to grow? How can we make that happen for you? And then where can we fit that into the job that we need you to do? So that's kind of that benefit there for both sides. And then with that, I mean, I think there's a lot of other things too. Like for example, and this may, some of these things may not sound that important, but they actually are. And one would be organizations organizations do not tap into their uh, employees as influencers on social media and, you know, in the gig economy and things like that. Like people, and there's a story in the book specifically that I talk about with this, this gentleman, uh, his name is Tony from, I think it was Sherwin Williams. And basically he had this huge millions of followers on TikTok and, and, you know, on YouTube and he had his own channel and he just loved his job so much that he would actually record himself mixing paint. And basically it got like, you know, something that's kind of considered like paint and hardware stores are considered for old people, but he got like a bunch of young people into it because he has such a following. And when they found out that he was doing this, instead of rewarding him for that and basically giving him a bonus for bringing all these new clients and younger customers in, they fired him. So that's a miss. 
So that's an example of what not to do. So that's like yeah. capitalizing on people's social media presence and influencership is a big deal, especially because everyone's a client and everyone's an employee nowadays and it's very transparent, right? So yeah. things like that and the organization can do a lot of things too. Again, besides upskilling and training people and focusing on them, um, that's huge, obviously, first of all, to add value. But, you know, again, some of the really advanced companies will have really robust um, offboarding and alumni programs. So that basically once you leave, they want you to stay in that network because they know that you could refer them business in the future, perhaps, yeah. or maybe you'll be a leader at one of their clients in the future. You know, they're really take, uh, playing the long game and taking that into consideration and keeping it like a nice um, ecosystem where you can come back. Maybe you'll be a boomerang. Maybe you refer us talent as I manage or mess it or mentioned, or maybe like they even have like these alumni mixers every quarter. I know like some of the firms I've worked for does that. And it's really nice because then you feel like you're still part of the family always. To play a little bit of devil's advocate, is is there the chance that this is kind of just like creating a world of work that is just even more tailored? I mean, kind of to the people like us, the people who are like go-getters and they're hard charging and they, and they want to do different things and they're okay with uncertainty. Whereas I know lots of people who... They just want a job. Like they, they don't. They don't want to become a people manager. They, they want to do great work. Like don't get me wrong. They want to be good at their job and they want to continuously improve. But they don't want to be on social media talking about their work. They don't want to be, you know, constantly thinking about their next thing. Is there? How do we prevent this from going too far? Yeah, this is a really interesting point. And I love that you brought up the devil's advocate because I kind of thought about that when I was writing the book because there's a lot, as you can tell, like in this book and what we're talking about is very much employee centric, right? So it, it's based, it's ways for the organization to win while the employee wins. But in my mind, there's a lot of work that went into this thinking about from the employee lens because that's not the case today usually. Yes. And so I wrestled with that too on the chapters about meeting people's human needs because yeah, that's amazing that you can be a differentiated organization and attract and unlock your talent because you're meeting their human needs. But to your point, maybe some people don't want their job to be their life. Maybe they get their yeah. meaning and their connection in their community and with their family. And they don't want to spend any more time at this job, not a calling or a career in their eyes, but at this yes. job than yes. they have to. And so what I would say is I think that there's absolutely room for all of that. And I think that that's kind of um, part of that dynamic between the employee and employer. It's like being very candid and transparent in the beginning. Hey, for example, if you have a family and a side hustle that you want to focus your, your time and energy outside of work on, but as long as you meet your metrics in, in the workplace or in the, you know, the setting that you're in, awesome. But being, I think the key is being transparent and having those discussions yeah. and with candor. And then maybe you'll change at some point. Because again, people, um, as we talked about, you know, mm -hmm. people don't just sit in say, oh, I just want to, you know, kind of climb the ladder literally or laterally my whole, or literally, can't even speak this morning, um, my whole career. But now it's much more like hustle and flow. Like maybe I want to take a sabbatical here and then I want to come back and then I want to have a kid and then I'm going to do this. And then, you know, I want to ramp up here and ramp down there. So I think to answer your question, there's absolutely ways to do it. But I think it just comes down to knowing yourself, what season it is in your own life personally, and being transparent about that with your company and your leaders so that you can work out that deal together, if that makes sense. That totally makes sense. I mean, I think the transparency is a big one. And I think there's also an element of, I wonder if you would agree with this, that, you know, not everybody needs to be able to work everywhere and different companies can set themselves up differently. You know, when I left the military, I was actually, I'll, I'll admit, it took me a long, a lot of wrestling internally with myself because I left the military, we had just had our first kid. And I dove into this industry that was predominantly, you know, filled with you know, it was, you know, kind of this like tech startup industry where it's everybody is, 
70 hours at work, you know, they're every, everything is just like, we're spending as much time as we can in the office. Almost, you know, I was probably at 32, I was like above the median age probably. And I was frustrated by it. Cause I was just like, but Hey, I want to be here. I want to do this stuff. And like now upon reflection, it's like, well, I don't need to be able to work there. Like they don't have to change their ways to me. If they want to be set up that way, they want to craft themselves towards a particular kind of talent, then maybe that's, maybe I want to work there, but that doesn't mean I have a right to work there. And as long as I think, again, back to that transparency point, as long as a company is open and honest and during the interview process, they're saying, look, this is the commitment that it takes. And then leaving it up to them. The, The bad thing is when companies, and I've seen this for sure, do the whole we're a family, we have work-life balance, and, and then you show up and it's just, it's not that at all. <laughs> so I think the transparency piece totally makes sense. Well, I think you're right. And that's what I see a lot of too, is where, because I'm, I'm on the HR side a lot, hearing the HR leader conversations, and it's always, we got to get bodies in the door. We need more people. And it's always like more, more, more people. And there's often, unfortunately, this like undertone of just kind of say whatever you have to say to get them to sign the agreement or sign the document. And so I got to be honest, like I know I definitely am one of these people, but even there's plenty of all of us that are kind of hating on Elon Musk at times because of his uh, management practices, if you will. But that's the one thing I think he did right. Like when he said, hey, we're going to be hardcore here. We're doing all this. I don't personally think that's going to get the best out of his people, but I understand um, that some people really flourish in that environment. And as long as he's transparent about it and says, this is what we're doing, we're sleeping in the office, we're doing whatever. And if you want to do that, you come on board. But it's like the companies that don't say that and then expect that later, and then you don't get promoted because you don't do it or you get fired because you didn't do it. That's where the problem comes in. Exactly. And I think, you know, to the X previously Twitter example, it was just, I think the main reason that got so much press is because from what I understand, it was just such a dramatic 180 in their culture. They, everybody there was expecting one thing and then this leadership change happened and it was different. It was very different. And that's, that's tough. That that's definitely tough for sure. Um, yeah. And then, and you mentioned earlier this idea of you know, most of your book is very employee centric. And I, and I do think it's interesting when I've looked at this space and companies, you know, whether it be HR, or other parts of the business are looking at ways to solve some of these problems, whether it's burnout or retention or whatever it is. It seems like very often the focus is on the employee and providing the employee tools. We're going to bring in a time management expert so that the employees can manage their time better. We're going to bring in a mindfulness expert so that the employees can fix their do their do their internal stuff. But it seems to me that th- th- though it's great to provide those things, very often they're solving they're not solving the problem. They're solving the the symptoms, not not the disease, right? And is that kind of it seems like that's kind of what you've found as well. Yeah, I think, you know, unfortunately, again, (laughs) most of the organizations that I've talked to, and again, they're they're doing their very best. They don't, again, this is not their skill set or their wheelhouse, but they do approach things in a very band-aid, let's address that symptom perspective. And I think our society does that in general. When you think of healthcare and education, it does the same thing. Um, Instead of getting at those root causes that are actually going to solve the issues. And then again, I think that's hard because again, 
leaders and even HR leaders and other folks, they, even if they have a high level of emotional intelligence, they're not usually psychologists. They're not, they don't yeah. understand a lot of the organizational dynamics and the way all of it operates as a system. So basically it's like, Hey, HR, just go create a DEI program or, you know, make people go to training to solve the problem or whatever. And again, that's a huge waste of time, money, and energy. And what I always tell them too, I help, I, when I come in, I kind of help them understand. I'm like, Hey, you need to understand the organization operates as an ecosystem, right? So yeah. um, culture, how leaders behave, all the processes and friction and technology and what's rewarded, what level of transparency you have. Is it cohesive? Do we connect the dots for people? All kinds of factors, all these different levers within an organization work together. So even if one or two of those things is really good, the other things can derail it easy. And so I don't know, I kind of like, for example, if a company wants to be innovative, because that's what everyone says, everybody um, wants to be like, innovative. Oh, let's just, <laughs> Let's get a new technology platform that'll give us innovation. And they don't realize that like, that's great. That's one part of it. But like, even if they roll out a program with it on top of that, it's like, unless they account for that entire system, which would mean things like um, creating a culture of psychological safety, having leaders role model their own personal vulnerability, um, rewarding people for taking risks, telling stories about them taking risks and how they learned all these great things from it, calling out wrong behaviors, you know, aligning the incentives, like all those kinds of things have to happen, not just here's a new innovation platform. So I see that a lot. Yeah. And, you know, like you mentioned, a lot of these leaders aren't trained in this kind of stuff. They don't have a background to see this stuff. Whereas especially inside talent development, maybe there's quite a few people that are. There's people with backgrounds in organizational psychology and it can be hard, you know, as someone who is constantly approaching these leaders to try to teach them about that ecosystem. How do you, what techniques do you find work to approach that conversation? Maybe, you know, to get people open to these ideas and make them realize, hey, it's not a, a new technology isn't the thing or a mindfulness retreat isn't the thing. There's a broader ecosystem change that needs to happen. How, how do you get started in those conversations? Yeah. Yeah. Thank you. That's a great question. I don't think anyone's ever asked me that. And it's really an important thing, as we just mentioned. So what I tend to do is number one, for better or worse, a lot of the times by the time I get brought in, it's because they've experienced pain, which for better mm -hmm. or worse, that's a really good motivator. It's like if they did an implementation of something and they're like, oh, no one adopted it or it didn't work or we didn't get the ROI, then they'll bring me in and say, what happened? That's some of my use cases anyways. And then I can yeah. explain to them, well, this is all these things here is why it didn't happen. These are the things we now need to do. I know how to do that. Let me work with you to do that. So that's one discussion. Um, the other thing is if maybe they have an experience change or um, I guess pain, the good news is I have enough years under my belt that I can kind of come in the door and say, hey, totally cool. If you want to go and do it your way without change management, without some of these other things I'm talking about, you go ahead and try it. Not a big deal. But then when it doesn't go the right way, if it doesn't, give me a call. So I try and I have a lot of data again from my clients over the years. And I put a lot of this in the book for that exact reason. So unfortunately it often takes them having at least one bad uh, uh, implementation or some pain of some sort, or for example, sometimes they'll come to me and it's the pain is that, Oh, our turnover rate is so high. Our people are super disengaged. That's also a pain point. And then I can kind of meet them where they are basically and say, yep, this is why let's get under that. And let's get down to the real strategic cause. And I think that's the other thing too, is when, when I can share with them that what I'm doing is not here's a program, here's a band-aid. And I can actually say, no, this is extremely strategic. We're actually drilling down into what's going to be, um, solving that root cause problem. A lot of leaders, their ears perk up. They like that. And because it's kind of like, oh, we realize it's not just a program, which they know doesn't work. Yeah. Yeah. I love that you brought up 
all the pain because it's interesting through the journey of starting my own company and working with a lot of businesses and figuring out how to how to sell the company. One of the things that I often think about is trying to identify those yeah. pains, right? And very early on, early last year, I was talking with a friend of mine who kind of posed the question of like, are you painkillers or vitamins? You know, and how <laughs> you you want your business to be painkillers, like you, because that's what like people need. That's what people want. But then as I as I kind of got further into that, it's like, okay, so there needs to be an identifiable pain in the business, but there also needs to be a clear owner of that pain. And I think that's one of the things where so many of the challenges that I'm sure you run into and we run into all the time in talent development, something like you just mentioned of retention, it's not always, it's not often one person's mm -hmm. pain, you know, and sometimes the you know, CHRO is tasked like, you need to go fix this. But it's one, you know, it's certainly never one person's, you know, it's certainly not one person who is responsible for all the causes, because there's lots of causes. But very often, even the pain itself is just very distributed. And uh, so it can be difficult to figure to figure out even even who to talk to, I suppose. Do you ever run into that where it's just like somebody comes at you? How often does somebody present you with a problem and then you kind of have to do a big kind of walk them through a bunch of stuff to say like, that's actually not your problem. This is your problem. Or you think you're responsible for it, but this person is responsible for it. Um, how do you work through that? Yeah. And that happens just about every time, no matter what the problem is, because usually people, again, it's not their skill set. They just know, well, people are leaving or people aren't using our new platform. We know those things, but that's all they know. They don't know why. And to your point, I have to bring in a lot of these levers that we talked about in the beginning of this conversation and say, and what I do typically when I go in is I will look at things like engagement survey data and all that other stuff. Yes, let's look at the data, the turnover. That's that's all important. It's not unimportant. But then besides drilling down into getting really deep on what the exact root cause from that is, then we talk about some other things, right? So what is your culture like? What are, you know, do we have like uh, stay interviews, exit interviews, all kinds of your glass door profile, social media, talk, let me do some interviews and focus groups and really get down to the meat of things. And then to your point, also get into with the business leaders and understand because usually everybody got a different version of the same thing but to your point it's distributed and it's different across different people and groups and each of these different things is caused like each there's like two or three of these things that are causing different pains yeah. for different people so you have to really get in there and kind of again i always diagnose it as a full system it's not just this one department yeah. or this one thing over here so i try to get as comprehensive as possible and now that i've done it enough and seen it so many different flavors of it i can get down there pretty simply and pretty easily yeah I think I'd love to double click on that because I think that's an area that could bring a lot of value to the listeners of what is your process for diagnosing stuff. You kind of quickly went through, you know, look at Glassdoor, do some interviews, but you know, who are you talking, like how many people are you talking to? What levels of the company are you talking to? Are they one-on-one -on -one or are they group? You know, it'd be great to hear, and I'm sure it's different in different organizations, but from a high level, do you have kind of a, a basic process that you kind of walk through to start that diagnosis that that people would be able to action on if they're they're facing these same kind of problems and they want to go to their leadership and say hey here's the true solution but they don't have your experience in in trying to diagnose that yeah, and it, it does depend. So for example, a lot of my work is change management and transformation of, you know, whether it's technology platform or a new culture, a new 
merger, like whatever the case may be. So when it's that, it's a little bit different. So in that case, if it's a change of some sort, because what we're trying to get then is adoption of something different, right? Yeah. Behavior change, yeah. something different. So in that case, it's actually, um, I have a whole list of questions. And like I said, I'll review all the different data, like what's what are what's the pain point? What's the presenting pain point? We'll call it that, right? Like, what do you okay. think the situation is? Or what's the big change? Um, from there, I asked them if, if it's like they already implemented something, understanding like, was there any change management around it? And with that, it's like all these 10 different levers of change. Like, did you have leaders uh, lead it and communicate it? Are they telling stories? Did we um, did we communicate as an organization? Did we build it into the way the organization already operates as far as policies, procedures, the way our technology links and, you know, all those kinds of, like, there's all kinds of levers that I'll ask them about. And usually the answer is no for most of those, or yeah, most of them, it's usually no. So basically that's a good starting point. Like, well, let's build a plan that's going to bring all these things in that it makes sense to bring in so we can kind of almost reboot it or relaunch it. And that's one way I call it kind of the optimization of whatever change they're trying to drive. That's one flavor. The other thing is to your point, I think a lot of HR folks, it's like, or even just, you know, managers or team leaders that yeah. the problem is retention and engagement and performance. Like those are, or silos, like all those kinds of other organizational problems. That's yeah. what they come to me with and say, okay, we have all these silos. What do we do? Or we have this. And so in that case, again, it depends on the organization. It depends on what kind of data, but basically I just try to get as much data as I can right away. Like, again, very simply engagement numbers, you know, retention numbers, any kind of like, what is the bonus system? Like, like all the different things and understanding how, basically painting a picture for me, what's the flavor of the organization? Like, what's the environment? What does that feel like? What is leadership like? Like how, how transparent, like the culture, all that stuff. And once you do that, then it's a matter of drilling down. And to your point, I tend to do a focus group. We can do surveys sometimes, but I like to do focus groups or interviews with probably about five to 15 people, kind of a cross functional, cross level group of different levels, that sort of thing. And that's after I've spoken with some leaders. So then that's also folks on the ground, including managers and just getting their perspective. Like, Hey, you know, we, we realize this problem is going on. We're trying to get under it. We think we have a couple of ideas over here. What do you think of these is, do you think this could be a cause? If not, if yes, whatever, add to it. What else do you think it is? And then if we need to, we even go deeper. Like we'll even interview like a larger group of people, as many people on the ground as we possibly can, but it really kind of depends on what the problem is and how much other data we have. So it sounds like there's at least three layers to get started of first, you're looking at, as you said, the presenting problem where what's the, what's the data around you think this is a problem and, and kind of see what data there is there. Then a series of sounds like kind of one-on-one -on -one interviews with different, whether it's the managers or the business leaders, like the, the key kind of the key stakeholders to, to check some of those assumptions, some of the things that you saw from the data, start to develop hypotheses, yeah. that kind of thing. And then after that, you go to these larger groups, 15 people to kind of, it sounds like you're kind of pressure testing the yeah. findings in those. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. Okay. Because I think it's good to go, because again, some of these people are totally, like a lot of the times the people that we're talking to are totally aware of the problem. But yeah. no one's asked them. Yes. And so, especially people on the ground, like they're, they all know the answer. Like literally I had a client recently where leaders came to me, like this is like a C-level and below came to me and said, oh, we have horrible turnover. We have all this employee survey data. And for the most part, they're pretty engaged, but you know, there's these other issues and we don't know why they're leaving. And so then to your, your point, then my process was, okay, so I've talked to a few of these leaders, the different business unit leaders, see what they're saying, see if any of that um, correlates or not. Sometimes it does. Lots of times it does. Not always. And then from that, as we're picking up those data points, bring those data points lower and lower in the organization and asking people, 
does this resonate? Is this why people are leaving? Mm. Is this how do you mm-hmm. feel? Is how's your experience? And then we get down to the real meat of it. Because again, it could be we're disengaged here or we're unhappy with this, but like let's get down to what is it about this that we're unhappy with, or what is it about that? And you realize, oh, um, we don't get any learning and development. Um, we don't get um, work-life balance. I had a client where that was the issue. They said they were paid plenty fine, the fine, the pay was good, culture was good, but the work-life balance was horrible, and they weren't getting training that they needed to be successful in their role. So it's it's always like a kind of I always feel like it's like a ten a bucket of ten different things, and it's probably a matter of three or four of those things, but you don't know which yeah. ones until you talk to the people because it's different by organization, department, level, et cetera. Yeah, and you can always know, you always think you know which one it is. <laughs> the leader always thinks leaders they know. often say it's money. It's almost always the knee-jerk reaction is, well, we're not paying them enough, especially if it's like a retail organization or something where it's hourly workers. It's always like, well, we're just not paying the same as Amazon or whatever. That's why they're leaving. Mm. I'm like, Okay, but money is only one aspect. There's a lot of other things like we talked about meeting people's human needs and all the other different frictions that happen. There's a lot of areas for opportunity that you can target, even if you can't pay more. That makes a big difference. Yeah, yeah, Yeah. that makes that makes sense. Going back, you you mentioned a lot of your time is spent with change management and, um, you know, introducing new systems. And that was there was one thing that stuck out to me from your book around this idea of, you know, what the expectations that employees have because of technology out in the world. And so if they come into work and you have these really clunky processes, then they're going to get really frustrated. And I a hundred percent agree with that. However, I have long said, I I mean, I, I literally think I've been saying this for about 10 years. I blame so many problems on Facebook and social media, not from the fact that we normally think about a social media, but these are companies that have the best minds in the world are spending billions of dollars making the things that we interact every day absolutely as seamless as possible. You know, they'll spend hundreds of millions of dollars to figure out a way to make a transaction take one click less. And that's a level of effort and investment that most companies just can't make. (laughs) You know, it's, it's, and, and is there, I don't know. Is is there a middle ground here? Because there's part of me that, that though I 100. I'm always trying. You know, I I always talk bad on different learning management systems. The number one reason why I would talk bad on them is because of how many clicks it takes to do mm-hmm. something. You know, there's one mm-hmm. that I used where you know enrolling an employee in a course took 16 clicks or something. That that's obviously ridiculous. At the same time. I do think the expectation for employees can sometimes be too high or from employees sometimes be too high. I don't know. Is there in all of your discussions, is there is there a middle ground there or or, or maybe I'm making too much out of this and the expectations aren't really that high. It's just that what we're providing is often so bad. Yeah. Yeah. I always say like, well, it's not that bad. It's like, well, that's not really the bar we're striving for. So, um, so here's, here's what I would say to that. I think you you had something really important here because this is what a lot of leaders will say like, Hey, we didn't have that when I was, you know, there, they don't, why do they need so much? And I, I always, I completely understand why some leaders feel this way, but what I always remind them of is a couple things. So first of all, I would, cause the world is different, right? So the first thing is, I think that um, expectations of employees are different today. So the one thing I always point out is like, you know, back in the day, the workday was nine to five. 
no one reached could ever reach you basically once you left that office you could totally um unplug tune out decompress you weren't stressed working all night while you're eating your dinner with your family or not even having dinner um and so today it's different because we expect people to be always on they're available all the time via you know since the smartphone was invented basically and you know they're we're also constantly trying to do more with less especially in the last couple of years of efficiency and so we're constantly expecting them to give everything and go above Above and beyond daily is just like the baseline itself. Yeah, and so because of that, they need time to recharge, right? So they, that's one thing to keep in mind. Um, the other thing I would say is over the past several decades, more and more of the value created by companies, instead of coming from things like machines and um, like oil in the ground and like like material things, it's actually coming now from our most humane aspects of people. And I think the number is something like, I don't know, Alan Murray did this study and I think it was kind of like, you know, back in the 80s, it was like the majority of the balance sheet, like 85% of the value came from those material things. And now I think it's like 90 or 95% of the value that companies bring or make in the marketplace is from these most humane aspects. So if you think of like um, brands and creativity and ingenuity and using empathy to create software, like all these things, it's coming from our most human parts. And if we're constantly burnt out, we're constantly on, we can't decompress and we're not treated like a human. It's like the work has become less and less mechanical, which is great, yeah. but we're expecting all those really humane qualities, which means we need to give our people well-being, meet their needs, do those, treat them like the most human people because they can't show empathy if they're kind of shuddering and hiding and stressed out and in a stress response. They can't do those kinds of things. It's a different kind of thinking and a different part of the brain. So that's the first thing that I would say where I think this comes in. And then the other thing is, as you mentioned at the very beginning of this, is that our younger workforce has really grown up in a world that, as you mentioned, is one-click, friction-free, super personalized, user-friendly, with real-time feedback. Everything's very clear. It's like everything is much more pro um, progressive and democratized in a way as far as transparency, all that stuff. But then they go to work. And it's like there's clunky technology, there's bureaucracy, there's this command and control leadership in a lot of companies, yeah. there's like lack yeah. of belonging, you know, lack of transparency. And so they feel like they're stepping back into time to like 1985 when they go to work. So, <laughs> so I just I always bring those data points up to leaders because I don't think that yeah. they realize that these people didn't grow up in the same world as the leaders just did. Just how much things have changed. Yeah, like they gradually kind of got used to technology moment to moment, the leaders did. But these younger folks, they've grown up with this totally different world. So yeah. it's just really weird for them when they go to the office and it's different. Yeah, that that makes a lot of sense. That makes a lot of sense. Mm -hmm. I think that's that's great. So we we always end with the same three questions. The first one is, what is one book or podcast everyone should read or listen to and why. Now you have your book, The Flourishing Effect. I'll go ahead and say that. Mm -hmm. Everyone should go read that. Do you have another recommendation? Yeah, I mean, the book I've been recommending since I ever found it, which was over a decade ago, is Man's Search for Meaning, just because it puts everything in life in perspective. Have you read that? Yeah, oh, 100%. That, that's that's an absolutely fantastic book, yeah. And it fits fits right in with, with everything that we're talking about here, which is which yeah. is great. Yeah. Uh, what is one skill that has most helped you be successful in your life? 
I think it's just always keeping my focus on other people. So whether that's clients, bosses, colleagues, whatever it might be, and just thinking about like, okay, what are they trying to accomplish? What can I do to add value and help them accomplish their goals? And then also, I think for me personally, just always learning from every situation, especially the difficult ones. Yeah. Yeah. I love it. And then you, as we've talked about here, you talk with a lot of different organizations. Uh, what is one of the most common opportunities you see for organizations to improve their talent development practices? Hmm. You know, I think the data, I came across this data point the other day and it said that only 5% of people feel like they're actually meeting their full potential at work. And that wow. just kind of felt like, ooh, kind of hit me like a ton yeah. of bricks. And so, you yeah. know, on one hand, we've got all kinds of companies saying that, you know, we need our people to be more productive, more efficient, more high performing, yet their people feel like they're not being tapped to use their potential and their strengths. Yeah. And that's where I think yeah. a lot of the burnout comes from, because I don't know if people know this, but a lot of burnout is not overwork. It's actually feeling underutilized, like you're not yeah. using your potential. And so I think this is a really big opportunity for companies really to think of it like, there's a lot of easy, low, no cost ways. And I have an entire chapter in the book, as you probably saw on how to do this. And it's things like job crafting, internal career marketplaces, apprenticeship programs, uh, cross mentoring, reverse mentoring, and, and tons more that it literally costs nothing. And so I think those yep. are some things for, leader, for leaders and organizations to get started on. Awesome. Well, I think those are some great examples of things that organizations can do. You can dive, you know, everybody listening, like I said, the flourishing effect, you can dive a lot more into the details to figure out how to bring that to your organizations. This has been a great conversation, Tennille. Thank you. Thank you so much for joining, joining me this morning. I think people are going to get a lot out of it. I hope so. Thank you, Matt. All right, have a great day. You too. Thank you so much for tuning in today. If you liked the discussion, make sure to hit like and subscribe so you never miss an episode. As a reminder, if your team is struggling keeping up with the training development demands of your organization, we want to help. Better Everyday Studios is a full-service instructional design team that can help you with everything from ideation to actual content creation and delivery. Please reach out to us using the link in the episode notes below. Have a great day.